children don't arrive in the world with a ready set of expectations, but when they become aware and sentient, they absorb the knowledge that their parents are their carers to whom they can turn for nourishment and love and support. And when that equation is turned on its head, for whatever reason the child has to look after the parent, the fallout can last a lifetime. And when the reason for that is alcohol dependency, the childhood emotions swing from love to hate as often as the adult addict lurches from sobriety to intoxication. It takes a very strong child to emerge from that relatively unscathed, and our speaker this evening did not. Having literally been born drunk, she had to confront similar, de similar demons as an adult. She very nearly drank herself to death. But she's come out the other side of all of these nightmares, not just as a survivor, but as a very talented writer. Please welcome Nicola Barry. Thank you very much to the best columnist in Scotland. My press agent. <laughs> right. Um, I was born drunk. I lay screaming on the delivery table, blowing out alcohol fumes as if my life depended on the stuff. The smell so strong, a theatre sister asked who'd been drinking. So my mother told me years later. The sister, looking irate as she asked the question, peered into the masked faces surrounding her. Accusing, angry, nobody said a word. The nurses eyed each other, unsure how to respond. Yet no one could dispute the existence of the smell. My mother had tippled gin the night before to calm her nerves. Being a doctor, she'd had the decency to cut down in time for my arrival, but couldn't bear to stop right through the pregnancy. It was hard enough for her to stop during the labour. Although the gas and air must have helped take her mind off the awful fact of her temporary sobriety. My father told me she'd been drunk on the way home from the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary a few days later. As a consultant anaesthetist, he agonised about how his wife had managed to drink on the ward and whether anyone had seen her, perhaps one of his colleagues. What my father didn't tell me was how driving her back home from the maternity ward, he'd smelled her breath stopped the car and dragged her out onto the road. She told me that bit, just one of the many tales of his frequent rages. She said he never hit her, not physically anyway, but she reckoned if she ever did leave him, she'd have been able to divorce him on the grounds of mental cruelty. You useless bloody woman, he'd bellowed that day, pulling her out of the car and shaking her shoulders. Can't stay sober long enough to have a bloody baby. I know what I'm doing, she shouted back. I'm a doctor, too, you know. That was how they went on all the time, my parents. She was terrified of him and drank because of his shouting. And he shouted because of her drinking. No one could remember which had come first, but together they were a five-star disaster. Looking back, I suppose my mother was lucky. Her drinking didn't cause me brain damage. She'd been relatively sober at the birth of my three brothers, so she said. She'd been a social drinker in those days, knew how to control it. It was years before I realised that people who talked about being able to control their drinking usually had a problem with it. As it was, my parents argued about whether her drinking during pregnancy had caused the condition in my hips, bilateral slipped epithesis, the effect of which haunted me for years. I never heard them ask one of the doctors, but my father was convinced it was caused by fetal alcohol syndrome, and used it as yet another stick with which to beat her. Mothers and babes are supposed to bond early on. 
she and I did bond after a fashion, inasmuch as you can bond with someone who's permanently pissed. Alcohol was the glue that held us together, mother and I. Bloody Marys are thicker than water, after all. We loved each other a lot more than we realised while she was alive. The trouble was she needed so much looking after that neither of us knew which one was the parent and which the child. Quick jump. We excelled at being odd. <coughs> Her drinking apart, my mother was way out there with constant money-making schemes she wanted to put into practice. In the initial stages, before she descended into alcoholic chaos, the money was supposed to fund a lavish lifestyle of champagne and dinner parties, as well as nannies to keep us children out of her hair. My mother paid for everything, for Ampleforth College for the boys and for holidays. She had her father's money in trust. The capital was supposed to go to us and the income to my mother, although she was forever trying to get the trustees to release our money to her for drink. She had enough, but felt she needed more. She was always spending, yet we didn't have much to show for it. If she wanted something, she bought it. Nevertheless, the furniture still looked bedraggled, and our clothes were never anything special. Eventually, after several years of enjoying herself, she began to see she was going to run out of savings and decided she needed to make money, but couldn't face going back to work. The chinchillas, a cross between rats and rabbits, were part of that desperation. My mother decided she'd somehow single-handedly be able to turn them into handbags. She kept the strange animals in a large cage in what we called the back kitchen, a dirty stone-floored room on the way out to the garden. The parents were called Romeo and Juliet, and they bred as rapidly as they breathed. What fascinated my brothers about them was that whenever they approached the cage, the animals would stand up on their hind legs and pee into their faces. The boys sneaked up on them when they weren't looking, endlessly trying to catch them without being peed on, but always failed. We never knew whether this was some sort of greeting in the chinchilla world or a warning to stay away. I slept in a bedroom with a sloping ceiling, which I painted black because I thought it would make me more interesting. Richard slept a lifetime away, down a flight of squeaking stairs, along a dark, dismal hallway, through the huge, cosy kitchen, up another flight of stairs and in a small room which for some unknown reason we called the attic. At least he slept there until my mother decided to breed chickens and converted his room into a sort of mini farmyard for her babies. Richard's bed and clothes were moved to a cupboard upstairs, just off a landing where we used to play murder in the dark. Mummy was determined to make a fortune from selling chickens' eggs. Everybody needs eggs, she would tell us, and their neighbours can bloody well buy their breakfast from us. Whenever we went into the attic, we'd be greeted by a sea of yellow baby birds huddled together, their tiny heads thrown back as they squawked for food. Within months, the room smelled like an abattoir. At the time, we thought all kids had mothers who bred chicks in the attic. In her way, my mother was an animal lover, just not very PC about it. Another of her wheezes was to breed from Susie and Wong, Tibetan lion dogs she'd rescued from a cat and dog home. With matted hair, they looked as if that looks as if it had been scrunched dried by experts. The dogs resembled animated floor mops. Susie had a large litter but sat on the pups, killing them all bar two. Wong was unstable, a rescue dog who had been badly treated. He would lie under my mother's bed, refusing to allow anyone near her. Eventually, he had to put down after biting one of my brothers in the face. My mother often stood at the kitchen sink, fag in her hand, holding Susie's bottom under a running tap while squirting it with liquid soap. 
just cleaning her up a bit, she'd say, completely ignoring the washing up which lay in the sink beneath. Considering her medical qualifications, she was not a great one for hygiene. To this day, if anyone comes to stay with me and offers to wash up, I always do it a second time, just to make sure it's really clean. You talk in, in the book, Nicola, about your mother being a chronic alcoholic um, by the time uh, you were 12. Can you remember your earliest memory of, of realising not only was your relationship unusual, but it was quite different to any of those that you might have seen in, in neighbours' children or friends in the street? Yeah, I, I think when I, they first discovered I had this condition in my hips and uh, I had started having operations about the age of 10 and I was in a wheelchair, I remember her staggering about and sort of falling on top of me quite a lot, which <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was a funny smell as well and I couldn't understand what that was. But I worked it out when I saw that she was swigging something from a bottle. But just, it was a total reversal of roles. I would find myself looking after her or trying to get her up off the floor from a wheelchair, which is not easy. Yeah. And you had uh, a, a very cold and strange and estranged relationship with your father, who was, who was French and who, as you said in that reading, was also a doctor, but was not doesn't really qualify much as a, as a caring professional. No, he was just a, a, an odd, very cold man. I think his mother had had dementia, and I think there may have been a problem there. But he basically was out of his debts. He couldn't cope with her drinking, and he was very ashamed of her and very ashamed of me uh, being disabled because for some reason, for a doctor, he thought that it was a reflection on him, which it wasn't at all. It was... And that's why I think he tried to blame her for my condition. Did you? Blame her, yes. <laughs> and still do. I mean, it's, I suppose, although I forgive her for everything, and I loved her very much, it's the one thing that I can't forgive her for, drinking when she was pregnant. Because you spent a huge time in a, in a wheelchair, and reading the book, almost the only person who seems to have a proper empathy with you about your condition and the difficulties it posed for you was the orthopaedic consultant. Yeah, he was an amazing, still is an amazing character who used to come round to the house. I think he suspected that something odd was going on and obviously eventually I told him. And he'd had the same thing wrong with his hips as I had. Um, and he gave me a lot of hope and a lot of care and he used to just make a point of coming in every single day, which no surgeon would normally do. But I did get out of the wheelchair, which, you know, a lot of people don't. It's kind of desperate stuff, though, when you find yourself wanting to get checked back into hospital just to get some kind of respite from what's happening at home. Yeah, Mr. Scott eventually sussed that, though. He sort of tackled me about it because I was always begging him to go back in to hospital. But, you know, he s I saw him last week and he said there was just nothing he could have done. There was nothing he could have done. Tell me a bit about your brothers and your relationship with them. Um, well, I'm sorry to the men in the audience, but men always, <laughs> boys always seem to manage to get out of uh, the caring role and that's what they did. But they were actually sent away to a very good boarding school and uh, I don't think they believed quite how bad things were when they weren't there. And you eventually went away as well, of course. I did, yeah, when I was about uh, 11. Um, but I, 
when I came home, I just took up my role again, you know. You and obviously had no kind of normal uh, relationships outside the home either at that stage because of what you had to do mm. within it. And there's one particularly sad story, I thought, when you, you'd been invited to a friend's house <coughs> and you say you went up to your, your chest of drawers and you took out a nice white blouse that you'd been keeping in there for a year just in case you got asked somewhere, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> pretty uh. sad. But when you went to that friend's house, of course, it must have been a kind of complete culture shock, what was going on there and what's a sort of, quotes normal family. Well, it, it was, it was very, I mean, it, I think eventually I started drinking myself because I just couldn't handle situations like that. They seemed as freaky to me as our situation must have seemed to them. And uh, I mean, that situation when I was round at their house that time, I saw some dust in the corner of the room and immediately got up and started cleaning it up, which went down very badly indeed, as you can imagine. But that was the, you know, what I was used to. It's what you're used to, I think. Where did you, where or whom did you go to for affection? Nobody, I was sort of, nobody at that stage, I don't think. And Mr Scott to a certain degree, but, you know, his family had limits that you couldn't go beyond. So, but you you end up being like I'm still a bit like that. I mean, Alistair is in the audience, the poor soul. But you know, I I still am very reliant on myself and a bit secretive sometimes. And then I just it's a habit. How do you, when you have no experience as a child of of two way affection and emotional support and comfort and all the things that those of us who are lucky enough to have a secure childhood take for granted. How does that impact on your ability to make relationships thereafter when you're older? I think very badly. It's very, very difficult. And people, I mean, people are always telling me I'm odd, you know. I think, well, thanks very much. But, you know, I, I've sort of struggled to get where I am in terms of relationships with people. And I really value the ones I have. So. You, you did, however, do the things that, that girls do, and you got involved with blokes. Yeah. And you, um, in fact, got engaged at, at one point to a, a chap called Colin. And I think, um, just to give you a flavour, ladies and gentlemen, of how difficult it is to um, make and sustain that kind of relationship with what's going on back at the ranch, Nicholas going to read another passage which involves um, her mother and, and Colin, the then boyfriend. Mm. Um, my mother had been on at me for years to bring him home. I'd actually managed to avoid it for two years, but eventually I thought, right. We discussed it many times, conversations which invariably concluded with her in her room drunk and me in the living room irate. Colin was my first chance at happiness. I kept telling her, why did she want to spoil it? Then she'd wheedle and plead and sulk until eventually one day I caved in <coughs> and agreed to ask him around for dinner. I'd have to let them meet at some point, I reasoned. Together we planned a menu, pasta and a special sauce she'd learned to make an, at an Italian cookery course. Remember how you made me do that evening class in Italian cooking? She continued to chat. Now she had got her own way. Do an evening class in cooking, mummy, for God's sake, you said. Apart from improving your lousy cooking, you might meet a nice bloke. How charming. Remember all the men I met in that cookery class? Every single one I fancied was queer. The only thing they wanted to whip up was each other. I smiled. Anyway, then we'll have fresh strawberries and cream, she decided. My mother bought a new outfit that she kept trying on as if for a wedding, wandering about the house, seeking my approval, having more fun than she'd had for a long time. I actually began to dare to look forward to the evening. 
She wanted one of two things, either that I would do the right thing and get married, or that Colin would like her and we'd both be round at the house more often. I partially prepared him for meeting my mother, keeping back the bits I didn't think he needed to know. He knew she drank, but not to such an extent. He knew my father had a stinking temper, but not that he was a tormented man who couldn't cope with his lot in life. There were still anxieties at the back of my mind about the visit. Would she really be abstemious for once, or would she let me down as usual? In the end, I was so worried, I stayed at home the night before to help her with the preparations. We had a great evening, chatting, digging out some good silver from a box in the loft, and a white tablecloth, mostly unused, even examining family photographs. Since the build-up had been plain sailing, I could scarcely believe it when I heard her on the phone the following morning at 7 a.m. Hello, is that Harvey's? She was phoning the grocers from which she got most of her alcohol. I could hear her voice as clear as a bell from my bedroom, even though she was speaking quietly. I know I'm a bit early, but there are a few things we need, I heard her say in a hoarse voice, as if she was trying to keep it low. I'd like some soap powder, the usual brand, a jar of coffee, a packet of digestive biscuits, oh, and a bottle of red wine. No, make that too, and one of vodka. We've got guests. As I lay in bed, silently fuming, the conversation made my heart stand still. That was always her pattern. Make up a few respectable items of shopping, then drop in the bottles. It was so obvious. If I'd had a gun that morning, I swear I'd have gone out onto the landing and put a bullet straight through her heart, what was left of it. The woman needed a drink to face her own shadow. I didn't feel sorry for her anymore, though. In retrospect, I suppose I should have done. I was judgmental of my mother's drinking in a way I never was of my own. By this stage, I was fed up with the whole family in relation to my mother, how I wished my father or brothers would do more to help. When the bell rang at 8 a.m., the front door opened abruptly. She must have been waiting right there in front of it, preparing panther-like to pounce, desperate to get her hands on the booze. I sat up in bed. I'm sorry to ask, I heard her say in her best wheedling tone, but I need the wine for cooking this morning. I can't find the corkscrew anywhere. Could you possibly open one of the bottles for me? As the suction sound of the cork popping echoed up the stairs, I cringed. Thank you so much, she said, and closed the door, desperate to get back inside and be alone with her prize. She was going to start with the wine and leave the strong stuff until last. I got out of bed and put on my dressing gown. By the time I reached the stairs, my fury was ready to erupt. She was coming up the stairs to hide the bottles in her bedroom, leaving a small bag of shopping at the bottom. You promised you wouldn't. I spat out the words in a terrible voice I didn't recognise. Just this once, you promised. Oh, bring Colin home, please, darling, I mimicked. You must let me meet him. Of course I won't drink, not on such an important occasion. And here he is, coming today, and you've got booze being delivered, opened even at the crack of dawn. My mother had stopped halfway up the stairs and was looking down, as if inspecting the worn carpet, sliding her left hand up and down the banister, in what on the face of it seemed like panic. Nick, forgive me, she started. I just can't face... Shut the fuck up, I shouted, glowering down at her from the vantage point of the top step. You're always bloody sorry. You don't care about me or anything else. You, you, I was stammering. I was so angry. Shut your bloody mouth, you spoilt bitch. My mother had spoken. The change in her mood quite dramatic. The words out before she could stop herself. She seemed shocked by their impact, embarrassed by their sheer defiance. 
yet oddly reassured as if she'd suddenly realised she still had a right to get angry. It's easy for you, isn't it? My mother's cheeks burned bright red as she clutched the banister again, knuckles straining to hang on. You've got a cushy life, popping in here every time you want something from me, pretending to your father you look after me, when you never so much as lift a finger to help. All you ever do is spy, see how much I've been drinking and report back to him. If you're not sniffing my breath, you're snooping in the laundry basket looking for empties. Don't think I don't know. Did you drink this? Did you drink that? You're even worse than him. And believe me, being worse than that bastard takes some doing. She was trembling from head to toe, yet warming to her theme. You know what it's like to suffer, don't you, Nicola? You understand what it's like not to be able to face the next day, to feel so screwed up that only a drink can put you at some kind of peace with yourself. I know you do. I've seen you. How come it's okay for you, but not for me? I know what you're after, my money. You'd be better off in every way if I were dead. Then you can have your precious Colin and no nuisance mother to spoil everything for you. Her speech didn't, didn't succeed in garnering any pity. She was always bring up the subject of her money. I don't think she really believed we were waiting for her to die so we could have it. She used it to shut us up when we were angry with her about her drinking. I was furious, the angriest I'd ever been. I came down the stairs to her level. How would you know anything about my suffering? I screamed back. You haven't a clue, have you? You're always out of your face, that's why. You're never here, not really here, not like a proper mother would be. You've never been here for any of us. I knew that would hurt, that I'd have the satisfaction of seeing real pain make a brief appearance on her face. And then I'm just going to tell you what happened when he came round. Um... That night, Colin came round as planned. I told him what had happened, and we decided to carry on as normal. I had cooked a meal, so the two of us sat in the dining room and ate on our own. My mother hadn't surfaced since the GP left, knocked out by the tranquilizers and no doubt all the vodka and wine. The house was eerily quiet. For me, there was something reassuring about being on home ground with Colin, no matter how bad the circumstances. I felt confident for once, straight safe, yet strangely aware that this was the last place I could feel safe with any certainty. I showed him round the house. He observed that a lot of the doors were closed, and I explained that my father didn't really like people in the house, not realising at the time how odd it must have sounded. I served the meal we ate, and he seemed to savour every mouthful. We had a great time. Towards the end of the evening, we were deep in conversation when the door handle began to move from side to side the way it always did when my mother was too drunk to open a door normally. It was a sign, a warning. You'd be sitting quietly minding your own business and the handle would start to make a noise, a sort of furtive fumbling sound. When I was little, Peter, my brother and I, would count how many times she turned the handle before managing to open the door. Once we counted 38. We were laughing so much we didn't see her throw up all over the floor before turning round to go back to bed again although cleaning up the sick while Peter went to watch telly had made me cry and cry. Colin and I stopped talking, mesmerised by the door handle's perpetual motion. I wanted to explain, say something, but I'd left it too late. As the door finally opened, I could see him take a deep breath, preparing to greet a possible mother-in-law. That was when Mummy chose to stumble into the room, totally naked, head bent forward, intent on finding something to eat in the kitchen. Colin didn't move, hardly looked up from the position in which he was frozen. 
My mother's face was streaked with makeup, her mottled thighs covered in black bruises from bumping into furniture. Her backside wobbled along behind her, entering the room a few seconds after she did. Bleary-eyed, she turned to look at the clock, ticking away in the mantelpiece and squinted, unable to make out the time. She swayed, then lurched against the dresser, setting the wine glasses and crystal flagons rattling in their cupboards. Straightening up, she squinted at us, sitting at the table, barely registering the agony on my face, ignoring Colin, who was still frozen to his seat, hardly daring to breathe. Every inch of that room screamed out in shame and panic. Gradually, it dawned on my mother that something was wrong, although she wasn't quite sure what. The strange man sitting with her daughter had something to do with it. That much was clear. Hi, she said, her voice thick with alcohol. I'm Nicola's mother. How are you? I did say earlier on that Nicola's a smashing writer. She's also a very brave one because this book details not just her mother's descent into that kind of... Uh, dependency and these kind of incidents, but as a result all of, all of, of all of that, um, Nicola too uh, begins to drink and Nicola too has huge problems with the same kind of dependency. And I think, Nicola, we were talking about this earlier because um, when you began to drink, it wasn't about so much that you were desperate for alcohol, but you were desperate to cope. Yeah, it was about confidence and you know, I don't think I ever really liked alcohol very much. And to be fair, I don't think she did either. I think it was very much a coping. And it was the way I'd been brought up to cope. That was what you did, you know. You drank because she told me. But she also, I mean, just to track back for a moment, she had what seems to me quite a, an odd childhood as well. Not dysfunctional the way that yours was, but certainly not one that gave you... It gave her any inkling of what proper parenting was about? No, her father was a very well-known psychiatrist of the royal family. And uh, he some, for some reason, he put his daughters on tranquilizers when they were about 15. And she always said that was her downfall, that, you know, she learned to cope with them and then she needed something on, on top of that as well. And, of course, you started taking your mother's I tranquilizers. I took her tranquilizers. I was very young, but... It was mainly because of my father I took them. He terrified me, you know, far more than she ever did. And the whole situation was just so unbearable. That everything she did, I copied, I suppose. Tell me a little bit, how, a little bit about how your drinking began to affect your life. Uh, well, I mean, it, uh, her drinking had affected everything physically, as I said, my legs and everything. But then when I started doing it myself, I became ill quite quickly and I got, uh, I broke my neck first of all, but although I was sober the day I did it, uh, I really, my whole lifestyle was leading up to doing something like that. I was in hospital for a year. But let's just Sorry. tell the audience, no, no, yeah. but let's just tell the audience exactly how that happened because you'd gone to Japan yeah. to teach English, you'd taken a time out, presumably you wanted to put a di bit of distance yeah. geographical as well as psychological between your situation and That's start right. a bit of a new life. Yeah. So you're in Japan, as you say, you weren't sober that day, but you were at a swimming, a swimming pool. Yeah, and I dived into the shallow ends and it was all up in Japanese sign language that it was the shallow end, so I, it was dirty. And I just went, I was doing a sub-aqua roll dive and went straight in on my head. And basically 1% of people survive. It's what Christopher Reeve did. And I was just extremely lucky and uh, rocky, as they kept telling me. 
And uh, I was in hospital for a year, uh, flat on my back, couldn't move. And I didn't drink then, actually. It was a real, you know, it was something I will never, ever forget, that experience. Um, but still, I came back, and I went back again. And I was just drinking all the time. And but when you were in Japan, one of the things I found most shocking about that whole incident, you're in hospital, you've broken your neck, you might, as you say, not easily not survived. You certainly might very easily have been paralysed for the rest of I your life. I should have been, yeah. And yet, you, one brother came to pick you up when you eventually came home, but, but outside of that, nobody, nobody mm. in your family thought to come and visit you, despite the fact that one brother was in Australia at the time. Nobody came to say, Nicola, what can we do for you? No, they didn't phone even, which... You know, it was as if, it's something retrospectively, I suppose, I think I understand that they'd given up, you know, they'd given up on my mother and now they were seeing me do the same thing, so they were just giving up on me. How despairing were you during that period? Very, very, it was the worst. That year in hospital was just the worst year of my life, you know, I think. So you came home, mm. but you didn't quite get it together again? No, <laughs> just... I think that was about the time where she died and uh, I decided I was going to, well it was just before, I decided I was going to go back and uh, I got acute pancreatitis, which is what happens to men usually, I think, who drink. But I lied about it and said that I thought it was something else, I didn't think it was that. But I came home and I fell down the steps of the plane and went into a coma for two weeks and they arranged my funeral. They didn't come and see me then either, but they arranged my funeral. Somewhat prematurely happened. Yes, and I just sat up one day. I seem to have about 100 lives, I think. And, and your mother, when she died, because that was like a kind of poignant moment in mm. a sense, because she'd put you through this, you know, horrendous childhood. Mm. And yet at her funeral, um, somebody came, somebody who'd been at AA with your mother, mm. which, as you say, she never really took to, but somebody came up and said how much your mother had helped her. and and. The way you write about it is almost, you're very tender about your mother. Mm, well, she was this incredible person. I know it doesn't, it's, I just wanted to say, you know, about her, what drink, she was such a beautiful woman. I mean, her mother was presented to the queen, what do you call it, a debutante. debutante. And she was, you know, slim and beautiful and intelligent. She had everything, and yet she let drink just turn her into this pickled old prune. She really was it. I mean, she died at 63 and with nothing. She had no friends. Well, she obviously did have these people who cared about her. But she was the sort of person people were drawn to, I think, in a way. But she kind of didn't seem to notice. Or, you know, it's what I've done myself. I didn't seem to believe that people did love her. It's and what happened, <coughs> what happened to your relationship with, with your father after your mother died? Uh, nothing. I mean, it, I... I don't think I ever had a relationship with him. I mean, there was an awful time when I got caught drunk driving two t twice in two weeks. And one time I was in his car and it was just terrible. He was so angry. I don't think he ever got over his anger that his wife had been like that, you know, and that here I was going the same way. There's a line in the book which says, you know, if we hadn't been so bloody middle class, the social workers would have been around years ago. I think that's right, and I really, and I, I don't know what happens now with middle class people, but you know, we had the police at the door once because my mother left me, she got so drunk she forgot she left me outside in a pram all night, and the neighbours called the police, and the police came, and my father basically said, look, some of our 
best friends are social workers. You know, don't even think about calling them. Go away. And they won't. And they did. Uh, I'm sure people will say, well, that wouldn't happen now, but... Mm. But you're not convinced? <laughs> not really, no. Because I think, well, why did that happen to me? I mean, I love social workers. I don't ever... I mean, I've always written about them. And, but I do wonder sometimes, you know, that the more intelligent people are, the more they're able to deceive, I think. I'm going to open this to the audience in a moment, but just to end this part of the yeah. of the occasion on a more positive note. Here you are, you know, you're looking terrific okay. uh, and you're uh, a confident lady, you've got a new partner. What um, what pulled the trigger for you? How did you get through all of this? I suppose her death. I mean, her death was just awful. You know, to, to walk into it, I found her and I was devastated. I would say I was more devastated by her death than my brother's, you know, and... Uh, we all ran away. My father and my brother both died climbing because they were running away. But just seeing her there, this repulsive creature, I thought, I'm not going to go that way. You know, I'm not. And when I buried her, I swore that I wouldn't do the same thing. And I haven't. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> you haven't and you won't. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that it's a, it's a very difficult subject, but I mean, there's the, the honesty of this book's quite extraordinary. Uh, Nicola and I met for chat the other day and I was just saying, you know, how amazingly brave it was to, to, to bear your soul in this way. But also I think how amazingly helpful to other people who are going to perhaps try to make that journey. And maybe, uh, though you can't, it's not a book I would recommend for children, it, it certainly would let children know that, that they're not alone, that this, that this happens and that you can come out the other end of it. So we've got a, a roving mic here and I wonder if, if, if we put the, the lights up a bit so that, um, can we put the lights up a bit? When you get to be a woman of a certain age, you get to be visually challenged. <laughs> but I've got the good focus on, so I'll probably cope. So, uh, yes, there's two hands there. If we just take the lady there first, please. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, that very honest and brave um, account. Um, I was just really interested to know when you said that uh, you made your mind up when you found your, your mother, uh, you, you sort of sealed your determination um, not to go that way yourself. I was just really um, curious to know about whether you had any any auxiliary help, whether you attended AA, whether you went into a sort of rehab or, or what? Um, I did go to AA initially, yes, and it just <laughs> I do write a chapter about it in the book that uh, I went with my mother as well, and it was all, it just seemed to be all these men bragging about tearing the arms off pets and things that they'd done when they were drunk and I just couldn't relate to it plus there was this uh, obsession I felt with drink and if you have another drink this is going to happen to you but having said that I think it's amazing for a lot of people but I think I'm a very resourceful person uh, because I had to be and when I decide I'm going to do something I don't look for help it's not an automatic it sounds horrible but it's not an automatic thing that I would do just before we go to the other question, Nicola, just, that just reminds me, we were talking earlier on about um, the, 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 the efforts governments make, authorities make to try and stop people drinking, and, and you think they've really colossally got hold of the wrong end of the stick. It makes me so angry. It's just, you know, they go on and on about the price of drink, and we put up the price of drink, that'll stop young people. I mean, you can't open a paper now without people going on about young people drinking so much. And the thing I think is teach people how to cope without it that's what matters it's not you know if someone can't afford to buy drink they'll steal it for goodness sake 
Um, as an uncaring man, I'm a little scared now, but one of the things I found remarkable about the book, how easy it was to read, even though the subject matter, because of the amount of, I, I want to say humour, but it's not quite, but it really isn't a misery read. And I wonder how c uh, conscious you were in writing it in that way, or with it just your natural style, and if that caused any problems with family and friends who thought you shouldn't be writing it like that. Um... Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, thanks for asking that question. Um, I'm glad you didn't find it miserable, and I hate the way it's often written off as sort of misery literature, um, because uh, to me it's just history, you know. But, um, yes, I did have a terrible problem with my certain members of my family and tried to write it as fiction and uh, got some just incredible reactions and <laughs> people saying... You know, especially one London publisher saying boys who went to Ampleforth College could never live in such squalor and that sort of thing. And, you know, middle class, two middle class doctors would never behave like that, blah, blah, blah. So uh, in the end, I thought, well, you know, I've got as much right to tell my story as other people have not to tell it. So I just decided to go ahead. But because there have been all these people making up autobiographies, um, you have to get signatures and things. It's not easy now. Would you like to <laughs> perhaps amplify that? Uh, what's his name? Uh, God, that book about the million little pieces. No, I mean, when you Sorry. were writing this one, did you uh, how difficult was it for you to, um, to get the permission of, of the people concerned? Uh, I managed it in the end. I managed it. But not without a struggle? No, not without a big struggle. More questions, please. I recognise that gentleman lurking in the middle there. Um, Nicola, you're a terrific writer. You've won umpteen awards as columnist of the year, etc., over the years. How did you get into the writing? And was that some way of therapy or exercising ghosts? Or how did you move from that point to being such a good writer and winning all these awards? Um, I think it was that year when I was in hospital in Japan. I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because what I found I was able to do was not help myself, but help other people. And it's the one thing I'm, I know I'm good at, is articulating for other vulnerable people what's wrong with them. And unfortunately, you know, it doesn't go down well in newspapers today. They don't want to know about people like that. But um, it's what I love doing most. So thank you for asking that question. What should we perhaps be doing, Nicola? Because we know that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what the figures are for alcohol, but we do know there's 50,000 families in Scotland who, who's the children of whom are affected yeah. by, by drug dependency. So if you, if you think of the incidence of, of, of drinking to excess in Scotland, we can assume there's many more thousands of children in that problem. So what would you, as somebody who's been through that, what would you say that we should do to try and liberate these children from their difficulties? It's very difficult, but I think, you know, all the, a lot of the people here know more about this than me, but I think to go into a family and be there in the context and stop taking people out of the context and treating them elsewhere, which is what they did with my mother. They used to take her out and... You know, and there's this strange thing we haven't talked about that 
when you take the person, or like they took her to hospital to the Crichton, when she came back, we made her we made her life miserable because we didn't want her back. Because, you know, if she'd been drunk so long and incompetent and incapable, and suddenly when she'd come in really well-dressed and start wanting to cook the dinner, and it just made you feel so angry. And it's very... It needs somebody in the family watching from day to day, and I suppose that just can't happen. But that's what needs to happen. It needs to be about teaching people coping mechanisms. I mean, I still, you know, coming in here, I was absolutely terrified. And I think a lot of people do go for a drink when they feel like that, you know? I wonder if there's anybody in the audience who's in that field of work who might like to comment. I'm sure there must be the gentleman at the, in the back row there. No? You're just scratching your head or bidding for the alarm clock. <laughs> Any other questions then, in or out of the profession? Here we are. Nicola, I think what you do in the book is very beautifully sum up the complexity of the relationship with an alcohol abusing parent. And I think that's what those of us in the profession find most difficult to do, because you can't just go in and whip a child away because yeah. you know about the love and the power of the bond. And I think that's what needs to be understood by the commentators who don't really get into the depths of these relationships between children who are affected by substance misuse. But how can people get into it? They read books like yours. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't even the publisher. No. <laughs> More questions, please. I've got a feeling in an audience like this, yes, I'll take that one first, but I was just going to say just before we take your question, I've got a feeling in an audience like this there's probably one or two people who have experiences that are not dissimilar, and if they, if they felt empowered enough, perhaps they'd like to contribute. There's a question here, however. Uh, what about school? What, what about school teachers? Did, did they not see your difficulties um, and, and try and help? There was an incident where I was at school, at uh, I think it was primary school, and basically my clothes were always dirty, and so was I, I should think, half the time. And uh, one of the teachers took me for a bath um, and gave me breakfast, and it was just an incredible experience. She was very nice, but, you know, I wasn't going to tell her. She kept asking me questions about what was going on. But you just become adept at hiding and lying and, you know, and I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't as if I was covered in sort of physical marks or something. But um, she seemed to accept at the end of the day, I just said my mother's fine. And she kept asking and I kept saying she's fine, you know, so. Why did you do that? Was that because you were embarrassed or because? No. What made you not want to let anybody else? You said a moment ago, for instance, mm. it needs somebody in the family yeah, who can be supportive. And if somebody professional, and there's many of them in the audience, wants to intervene in a benign way, yeah. what's the, what was the difficulty you had with, with responding to that? Well, thinking about it, I suppose it is a sort of shame. I suppose it is. I mean, I, I think shame is a bigger disease than alcoholism. You know, people are always trying to hide things. But also there's this fear that you'll get taken into care, you know, and I, I know that is a, it's probably not such a big fear now, but 
it certainly was then. You know, if, if people saw what went on in our house, you know, they, I'm sure they would have wanted to take us into care. The, the neighbours must have seen, or at least heard, I mean, there's, a, there's a bit in the book where um, uh, Nicola's describing her mother shouting for her, wanting her help, mm. wanting and and Nicola... Um, she did that every night. And Nicola's turning up the, the TV set to try and drown out her mother, and you just imagine, you know, the neighbours from hell, because, um, you know, there's all this noise going on, and you would think some neighbour would have would have thought that they ought to intervene in a positive kind of way. We lived in Garscube Terrace, which is a very, very big three-storey houses. You know, you just wouldn't have heard anything from next door. But um, no, we'd, I mean, there were things going on fire all the time. And I mean, it was just chaos, absolute chaos. But uh, the neighbours, uh, I don't know, they just minded their own business. That's what middle class people do. You know, that is the great thing about a sort of housing estate or something. People don't mind their own business so much. Right, more questions, please. Yes, in the middle there, thank you. Sorry to ask this, Nicola. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship you have now with your siblings because one of the things about memoirs is that your experience is unique to you, even though it's shared to a degree. You're all living in the same home within the same family, but your brothers were absent, so you touched on the fact that they didn't really experience it in the same way. And I wonder if now that you're older, if they... You know, if do you talk to them about it? Is it something that comes up, or is it just something you have put in the past? Oh gosh! Well, my brother I was closest to um, died on top of Ben Nevis. Sort of, he was always running up into the mountains to get away, and I suppose I miss him still, actually. But my middle brother in Australia, I was amazed at his response to my book. He said, I don't want to read it because he trusted me and he writes as well, so he kind of understood. But he emailed me the other day to say that he just couldn't stop crying. And, you know, I felt terrible because I just never, I thought he would phone up and say, for God's sake, that didn't happen or that didn't happen. But it wasn't like that at all. He just said, I, I never knew and I can't stop crying. I never knew that I'd been sexually abused by someone in the house and... We had a joiner who came in, and that seemed to upset both my brothers, actually, that this joint... I mean, you know, when your mother's drunk, anything goes, anything can happen. And we had this guy who was always coming in and picking me up out of the wheelchair and sort of sexually abusing me. And uh, they were very... They seemed to be appalled as if they didn't know a lot of the things that were going on. Does that answer your question? Is it possible that they've they've introduced a kind of selective amnesia because there's a lot of things they don't want to think about? No, I don't think so. Interestingly enough, my middle brother wrote an account of this as well. He wrote 25,000 words. And I read it about a year ago and Alistair and I were flying to America. And the whole way I was reading it, I kept like, nudging Alistair and saying, listen to this, that. And he would say things that I didn't give a damn or, you know, just... It's a perception. You know, if we, if we all have a totally different perception of the same situation. That's amazing. Were there bits where they corresponded, however? Where oh, yes. Yes, there were. But, I mean, as he said himself, he didn't come into it until towards the end. So I suppose the, very, the childhood bit were, um, you know, he hadn't really been there. He'd been sheltered from that. 
more questions, please. Yes, gentleman at the back there. Thank you. Nicola, was there ever a time, as you look back, where you wish somebody had intervened and taken you into care? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. Yes, I think, looking back, definitely. But I, although I don't know, because such, that's such a difficult question. Because I think, well, everything that happened at home and happened to me in my life has informed me. And, you know, I have a kind of informed heart about situ things like disability I care so much about. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like that if I hadn't had that experience. So, and yet, remember the moment when you're begging to go into hospital yeah. in order to avoid being at home? Mm. That doesn't suggest that you, the bond was so strong that you wanted to stay there. Yeah, I suppose then I either wanted them to split. I was very keen that they would split up. I know that. Why didn't they? Oh, I don't know. People do that all the time. You know, that's the comfort, I suppose, isn't it, of the situation you know. And I think my father was too terrified to leave my mother. But I suppose to answer that question, as a child, I would have rather have been taken into care. But as an adult, I would rather have had the experience that I had. <laughs> More questions? Do you think when you, you know, you said there, as an adult, you'd rather have had the experience, I think you're not really talking as a, this is an adult there, you're talking as a writer because, uh, because uh, mm. um, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as they say. But nevertheless, um, the fallout from what happened to you has, has taken away huge chunks of your life. Yes, it has. And it, but I think the only thing that I feel, I mean, I have this amazing man, he's there. I want everybody to look at him. <laughs> Alistair. Uh, see, I'm going to get upset now, but I mean, he has transformed my life, you know, and so have I. I've done it myself, a lot of it, and his daughters are amazing. You've but got that family. Yeah, I have, and, you know, it was something I never thought I would have, and I have this ability to, to write about it, you know, and I can, whoever I, you know, I was editor of The Big Issue for about a year, and I just loved that job. I hated the journalists there, but... I loved the Venters. <laughs> they were the best people I've ever worked with, you know. So it does give me that. It just enriches my life in that sense, the experience. I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not as positive about Nicola's partner as she is because <laughs> when we were chatting a couple of days ago about one of these bizarre coincidences in the village that's Scotland, um, she told me his name and I said, I used to work with uh, Alistair when, when, you know, Ian's ago when we were both in the Daily Record and she said, oh, you'll meet him on Friday. I said, that's grand. I said, so So we met up in the author's yurt and um, he was ungallant enough to remind me that we'd both had a different colour of hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't meaning I'd gone blonde either. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose um, for you that's maybe uh, the first time that you've felt that you've got somebody that's always going to be in your corner and maybe for most of your life that's the one thing you always lacked. I think so, and I think it helps when other people see you as an oddball, because I know in journalism I'm seen as an oddball. There's no other kind of person in journalism. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, having that, having him and having that family, things that like that don't matter so much. You, know, you don't feel so on your own. 
I didn't ever ask you this. Is your father still alive? No, he died on top of a mountain. And my father and my brother, and it was that was just so weird. We had a, the police came to the door twice in my life and said, Dr. Barry, we're sorry to tell you Dr. Barry is dead. And once it was my father and the Cairngorms, and then Richard. Oh, no. Is my phone. I don't believe you've got a phone with a ringtone of a... Just ignore it, can you? I think uh, you should, I th I'd rather you put it off because I don't think I can cope with it. I'm sorry. Do you know, usually, ladies and gentlemen, you go into something like this and you say to the audience, now, I know you're all very well brought up, would you please make sure your mobile phones are switched off? You don't expect the star guest. But I can tell you, I, I can exclusively review, as we say in my trade, that it happened to Douglas Hurd earlier on today, so... <laughs> oh, I'm in good company. Well, you're in company. But <laughs> She's a star. Just I can't remember what I was... You were telling me about your father, but I, I suspect, mm. given all you've said about your dad, um, yeah. I mean, you, you said that your mother's death had a profound effect on you because you suddenly realised that there were all kinds of bonds, some of them clearly unfortunate, but, but nevertheless very real. Mm. I presume there was no such feeling when your father died. I don't know. I was upset to a certain extent, but, you know, he just terrified me. He terrified all of us. And I mean, when my mother died, I felt so guilty and so guilty that I hadn't done enough to help her. But I don't know what I felt when my father died, just empty, I think. When my brother died, I was absolutely devastated. You know, I still am when I think about it because he was just, he tried everything. And wanted to help me, and when I was in a wheelchair, he was so fantastic. He used to, you know, you do, you can become a bit isolated. I never had boyfriends and stuff, and he used to take me out, and he was just great. There was one sad little vignette in the book when, bizarrely, in the middle of all this chaos and and, and domestic horror, there's a birthday party for you. Only the oh. only person that isn't at the birthday party is you, because you're in a wheelchair in in one room of the house, and and the the adults and a few children who are allegedly celebrating your birthday are in another room. And um, mm. just, just tell them what happened then. Uh, Mr. Scott arrived and... Um, the surgeon. The surgeon, and he came through to the back room and he, he just looked at the situation and picked me up and carried me through to have a piece of birthday cake. And it was, the f it was remarkable because it was the first time I'd actually remember being picked up by an adult. And uh, I just sat with him in there for about 10 minutes, then he took me back. And you know, the most amazing thing, I phoned him because I wanted to give him a copy of this book. And I hadn't seen him for, what, 25 years or something. And he said, I always remember your Mona Lisa smile, he said. And then he said, and then there was that time I came to the house when you had a birthday party, and I couldn't believe it. He remembered. It was the first thing that came to his head. Did you... He said, I just still can't believe that when I think about it. Did you think on that day at that time that you wished he was your dad? Oh, absolutely. I adored him, yes. And I think that was all part of the shame thing leaving me through in the back, though. I think they were very ashamed of everything my parents. You said something kind of chilling a minute ago that that was the first time you remember an adult picking mm. up. Does that include hugging? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I went to kiss my father, he would actually turn his face away from me. And my mother, I mean, a, a person who's an alcoholic like that loves nobody but, them, but the bottle. It's not even that they love themselves, they don't, but that's all they think about, really. So no hugs? No. 
no bedtime kisses. No. And how much has that affected you as an adult? I think it's, I mean, there are times even now when I cry just uh, terribly. And I do cry quite a lot, which I didn't do as a child. And but I it, but are you a tactile person despite that lack I think of I am. Ask him, but I think <laughs> I am. Alistair, is she tactile? <laughs> Afraid no, but so. I, I just mean that, you know, sometimes, I mean, I came from, luckily, from a very huggy family yeah. and it was important and I wondered if it was difficult for you to make Not these gestures. Not at all, no, I, I am, I mean, if anything, I'm over, I encourage people too much and I'm always thinking about how can I love people or encourage them because I know I'm not at all a cold person, no, if that's what you mean. No, I didn't I'll mean kiss it. you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> You're really not my type. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Nicola Barry.